Thanks, Amy. Appreciate that. <clears throat> so if you were writing a book about sexual abuse in the church and you wanted to use some scripture in it, what scripture would you probably go to? What was that? Oh, the golden rule. Anything else come to mind? Jesus Christ has been very stern word. Like he even looks upon a woman with lust in his eyes and committed adultery. And of course, the Pharisees were very strict about that law. So he created a standard that, shall we say, is by our secular standards, is pretty harsh. But that's right. where he's headed. So a vote for Jesus' words about about it, about lust. Mm-hmm. What are you thinking? Ah. <laughs> oh, you did? Yeah. Yeah, so that's sort of a, yeah. So. Obviously, there can be consequences. Let's just do it that way. <laughs> the story, so the story of Tamar. Yes. Yeah. I have no idea, but I have a whole list here. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. So, yeah, one of the handouts is indeed uh, the table of contents to my book um, with what's added are uh, the scriptures um, that I chose to use. So if, if we would just, let's just go around and say the names of these uh, chapters out loud. Um, if, you, if, you, if you would start, we'll just go this way. Just read, what is, what's the title of chapter one? What's chapter two? Silence and shame. Accountability and justice. Purity culture and rape culture. Betrayal and deceit. Vulnerability and hurt. Lamentation and spiritualism. And a way forward. All right. So um, I'm curious as to which of those phrases is the most interesting to you, the one that kind of jumps off the page where you would might be a little bit tempted to just go to that chapter first if you weren't going to just read the whole book through. Which one jumps out to you as being especially interesting? Number three? He's saying that, what, the system and secrecy? Now, any re- and, um, anybody else went, oh, the system and secrecy looks really good. Accountability and justice. And which of those words jump out at you? Uh, accountability. Accountability. Yep. Purity culture and rape culture. And you're mentioning betrayal and deceit. So different chapters are jumping out at different people, which is interesting. And um, if you do read the book, you know, it's, it, I think it's helped, helpful to read it in order, um, but you certainly can. Some of the story chapters are more standalone than others. The first four kind of form a, a whole, you might say. After that, they're more standalone. I'm curious about you studying the story of Tamar in a Sunday school class not long ago. 
and I'm glad to hear you did that. She's one of the stories I use, actually, in Chapter 1. And um, I did want to mention tonight I'm giving a lecture at Lewinsville Presbyterian Church, their annual Saltzman Lecture, and I begin with the story of Tamar, who is raped by her half-brother, Amnon. And it's a story that we uh, have in our scripture in Second Samuel, but don't usually pay very much attention to. It doesn't show up in the lectionary, put it that way. So, <laughs> so your pastor's not going to preach on it if they're a lectionary preacher. And indeed, there are a number of stories of rape in the Hebrew scripture. Um, do you know any of the other ones? David and Bathsheba. Yeah, the one in Judges, they don't give her a name. Uh, we call her the Levite's concubine. That's a particularly horrific uh, story. Sometimes I think they don't even imply what happened. In other words, somebody's told and they take somebody, but you don't know how the woman felt about being taken. And so it's just go out and do this, or, you know, like Sarah says, they do whatever. And you don't actually get much of a sense. You think, oh, well, there was consensual thing between Sarah and Abram, you know, but I don't know how. Until, until he sold her off to the king, calling her his sister. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, once you actually start to explore some of the Hebrew scriptures with this lens of patriarchy, it's very sobering to realize the degree to which women were considered less than men and were um, treated treated in ways that uh, range from just um, just impolite to just absolutely brutal. And so one of the things that strikes me is, uh, as the Me Too movement has picked up steam, is the degree to which some of these stories are simply repeating themselves, these stories that are millennia old. And I believe that the church could make much better use of the scripture than we do in approaching this subject, which was really my driving force in writing the book. Um, as many of you know, I'm a survivor of sexual assault myself. I think one of the times I came here to speak to you, as Amy mentioned, was about that book, and this one is called Ruined. I've also been here, I think I came three or four times to talk about this book, about pilgrimage to the Holy Land, Israel and Palestine. So just to mention that in case that lines up in your mind, like, oh, that's her. So I wrote this book about, um, this is a memoir about being assaulted at gunpoint when I was 20 years old. And I was a senior in Cal at college, at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And... You know, it was a really life-changing event, and I could easily spend the hour, you know, talking about that. But I, 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 I want to just mention that this is what gave me my passion for the subject, um, uh, and so that I felt called, I felt called by God uh, to write this book um, in 2016. It was published in 2016. Now, 2016 was about a year before the Me Too movement began. So I started doing some speaking relating to this book about sexual assault in the church. I was doing like training events for clergy, how to recognize sexual assault, how to respond to it more effectively. And um, 
I remember um, that I was doing one of those events the weekend that the Harvey Weinstein story broke. And I thought to myself, at last, at last we're getting some media exposure. When the hashtag MeToo popped up and there was just that chorus of people saying, I've been victimized too, I thought, we're going to sit up and take notice. Because my book in 2016 really felt ahead of its time. It won a major award from Christianity Today Women, Book of the Year. A lot of people don't want to read it. On some level, I understand. Why would you want to read a rape memoir, right? Tough stuff. On another level, let's all just quit pretending this isn't actually fairly normative. Our statistics tell us that women are assaulted frequently. So um, so as, as I did more speaking and people would tell me stories, I have never been at a speaking event where I was not told stories. I've been told a story already this morning, right? Because assault is very common. So I thought it was time for me to look at other people's stories. And what I've tried to do is interweave them with scripture. So that's what this book is about. The truth is that I was actually sexually assaulted a second time. And that's the story that I begin this book with. I actually wrote it as uh, an article in Christian Century. And it was called The Pastor's Me Too Story. It's a story about what we might call sexual harassment. At the time that it happened, the word sexual harassment didn't really exist. the, the, The reality of it did but we hadn't coined the term yet. You know, we didn't know how to talk about it. This was like before Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas, just to put it in in, in context. Most of you, I think, are probably uh, of an age to remember uh, those events. So I begin this story, uh, this book, with that story of being um, sexually harassed and sexually assaulted by my senior pastor when I was an associate pastor in my first church. I tell that story, and I call it Power and Patriarchy. What I do is I intertwine it with the story of Tamar, who's raped by her half-brother Amnon, who is um, second in line to the throne of King, King David, next in line to the throne of King David. And so he's a man of great power. He desires her. He rapes her. And then he discards her. And I um, try to unpack that story a little bit. So this is what I've done. I've tried to look at these themes then about how what what sexual abuse really is is the abuse of power always. You know, in when I was assaulted at gunpoint, the power that the criminal had was a gun in his hand. Right? The power over me of life and death. The power that my senior pastor had was um, not as visible, as tangible, but in a way uh, just just as real and more multifaceted, more long-lasting. And so I want to look at some of those those subs those those topics and those themes and lift them up because um, they're important. They're part of real life. And they're not new. I feel like they're a great injustice. So th- that's just to give you a sense of where I'm going in the book. 
I could tell you more about more chapters, of course. But I'm curious, too, about what about this subject is of interest to you? Why would you pick up this book, and what is it that you would hope to find in it? Grab a, a sip. What was that? How to prevent, how to avoid. How to prevent and avoid abuse. And I think, as I pointed out earlier, accountability for all the areas that are part of this that are unwilling to see their part in this. Such, what, 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 what do you have in mind? Well, mentioned them. I mean, whether it's the church or whether it's his work or whether it's, you know, like in the case of Weinstein, the, you know, what all the power that then is abused by um, by the individuals with the power. I mean, it's it, and people just say, oh, well, that's just the way it is, or that's the culture. And and so what I hear you saying, too, is there's all these people who are ancillary to the abuse, but support it if, if, if for no other, in no other way by turning their heads from it, by ignoring it. I mean, I remember when the story about Matt Lauer um, broke and, you know, that he had a, a button on his desk by which he could lock the door so a woman couldn't leave after he made his move. I thought somebody installed that lock. Somebody installed that lock. Somebody, somebody okayed the expenditure for installing that lock. In other words, there were people who knew. Um, so yes, you're absolutely right that accountability is, is wider than just the one individual who, who's abusive. So thanks for bringing that up. You mentioned prevention being especially interesting. I feel like the church is finally starting to do a better job in prevention. We're in National Capital Presbytery, so is Amy, I don't know, are you required to do the boundary training? Um, no. No. But our church here does does some training. Okay. See, as a clergy member of our presbytery, every three years I have to um, do what's called healthy boundaries training. So and Larry Whitney and um, our four pastors have to do that. Yeah, so every clergy member has to do that in order to like be in good standing. And then um, that's also true of like Baltimore Presbytery and the presbyteries around us, because sometimes like people who are just, oh my gosh, you know. It gets very serious. Like if I don't get that done in the next month, I'm not going to get a paycheck. You know, so people come scrambling to get their healthy boundary training done. And but 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 National Capital Presbytery is a leader in that way. A lot of people, a lot of church denominations or different different presbyteries might not require that same thing. My point is that we're starting to be just a little bit better. Most churches have what's called child protection policy or a safe church policy, and they, you do training. Well, you're a big church. You have a lot of people coming through. I'm, and, a and a preschool. So I'm really glad if awareness is fairly high and you're going to be reputable about that. So what I, we're making like 
we're, we're making baby steps towards prevention. I mean, important. I don't want to say they're not important. They are so important. They're exactly where we start. I'm just, I'm actually more interested in response because what happens is when sexual abuse is uncovered somewhere, then what do you do? And I don't know a church that doesn't have sexual abuse in its past. <laughs> Name a church in this presbytery that has never had sexual abuse in it, and, and I can refer you to somebody who could tell you a different story. Um, so one of the suggestions I have in my book is to let, could we start telling the truth? <laughs> could we just tell the truth? Could we just tell the truth about what it's like uh, to be sexually assaulted and what are the ramifications of that? And can the church do a better job? This is one of kind of the, the driving forces for me and why I wrote the book. Anybody else? Yeah. When, when we're using the term abuse, are we talking about physical, sexual abuse? Are we talking about mental harassment? What, what exactly are we talking about? Oh, what a good question. What a good question. Um, we're mainly talking about acts of abuse that are physical. Um, but but what, you're, what you're alluding to is that there's a lot that precedes a physical assault. And in chapter, is it chapter 5? Let me just look at my... Chapter 6, Betrayal and Deceit. A Predatory Youth Pastor. That's a story that literally hits close to home for you because it's from Vienna, Virginia. It's the story of Eric DeVries who preyed upon a number of young women in the youth group. And that was, um, that was dealt with at different levels and at different over a course of many years. And the Washington Post played a big part in exposing that story. But one of the things it exposes is the grooming that took place, that went on under everybody's nose, which is why I focus on that betrayal and deceit piece. Because it would be like, it, it would be, ex my friends, it would be exactly like if that happened here at Westminster, how you would feel if you found out that one of your youth workers that you loved, that you thought was a great guy, had been actually grooming girls developing intense emotional relationships with them, intense spiritual relationships with them, reading to them from the Bible about he, how he was going to be their husband, making each one of them feel special. And then as soon as they turn 18 and not a day before, to assault them. That's what happened in Vienna. You might want to get the book just to read that story because that is that is reality. That's powerful. That's right here in this presbytery. I had kind of a connection to that story because I worked at Vienna in 2001. I'm turning to my husband like subconsciously because he holds half of my brain, right? <laughs> no, it was because it because um, I left right before 9/11, and um, Eric the predatory youth pastor came like we were ships in the night. He was coming as I was going. So I know the folks at Vienna and um, and I tell that story from the point of view of a good friend of mine who was on staff there, Ginny Richards. 
God bless her. I use her actual name in the book. How would you feel if someone wrote a book and had had a chapter about the worst thing you've ever done? The biggest mistake you ever made because she stood behind Eric. Because she believed in him. And I wanted that point of view in my book. Because good church people make mistakes like that. And, and so I want other, others to see that and to, so we can be wiser. So we can have a heads up and go, actually, there are predatory people out there. There are charismatic leaders who will prey upon girls and boys. There's another story. Chapter three, I think, has a, has a, has, has another story that's very close to home for me of a church where boys were preyed upon. That's intertwined in those first four chapters. You'll see how the same church where the the senior pastor assaulted me harbored this predator for a long time, which leads me in this issue of the system that I felt like that whole system was so rotten that it allowed both of these things to happen. I mean, that church still exists today, and... Um, Right, life goes on. They're only beginning now. My husband found their statement on their website, which is brand new, because my book got released on Tuesday. (laughs) And so now they've got a statement on their website. My friends, they would never have dealt with this abuse if my book hadn't been published. Now Now they're scrambling. Now they're doing damage control. But I name names in this book because I can and because I think it's powerful to name names. So pray for me that we don't get lawsuits. <laughs> yeah. You know what it reminds me a little bit of, is, and this is on my mind, but, you know, it's like exposure response therapy is what you're providing. And that therapy hmm. is, um, you know, the very thing that you feel anxious about Yeah, well said. I've never thought of it that way. Have you ever thought of it that way? I mean, we've been swimming in this for, um, <laughs> yeah. That's, that is kind of what you're, what you're catalyzing. That's a good thing. That's right. That's right. And we should be learning from each other, right? I mean, I mean, what the law is, is people who've made mistakes and they're trying to prevent that mistake from happening again. And that's why the law mushrooms the way it does. Um, Presbyterian law the same way the book of order gets bigger every year because hopefully as we learn we then 
See, our impulse is to make a law to prevent it from ever happening again, which is, you know, it's not a bad impulse, but I actually think that by reading books and engaging in discussions and really just raising the level of our dialogue, we can actually do a better job of preventing these kinds of things because you can't legislate everything. And you can put in safeguards, but um, but it's better for us to say to each other, how did that happen at Vienna? Not to grill the people at Vienna. I mean, the woundedness, the pain around this there, that will never, it will not be gone. I mean, it happened, I think, air, I mean, so it, it was exposed in 05. I mean, so this is already an old story, but it's, it doesn't just disappear. It doesn't just disappear. So what attitude do you feel like gets in the way? Boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. We've got to teach our young people. That's one of the questions I was going to ask you is, is there youth ministry that teaches the boys, no, you know, <laughs> you can't be blamed for doing that. I had a boyfriend say to me, well, you can't blame me for trying it. Yeah, okay. Hmm. Um, and, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and also to teach the girls to stand up for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yeah, they have to be given the tools and the permission. One of my big themes, and I'd say it was, I'd say it's really a theme in my, in the memoir, Ruined, and also it, it runs through all the stories here, is the theme of what I call agency, which is the power to make, to make decisions that, that matter. And how we tend to take that power away from, especially from girls and women. And if you look at the scriptures that I deal with through that lens, I mean, just we mentioned Tamar. The whole, what, what a theme in her story is that she had no power. And Amnon had all the power. And so even though she makes an impassioned plea to him that is eloquent, it makes no difference because she's not allowed to have power and to make decisions that matter. I think that when I was, you know, um, sexually assaulted at gunpoint when I was 20, um, I was in a Christian church school environment. I was in a, a Calvin College. And there was not much sense of empowering me. And uh, what the sense was, was you can guess what everybody told me. Put it behind you. Put it behind you like it's the role of women to excuse me, we're not in a sanctuary, to eat shit. That's what it is. It's like this terrible thing happened to you, swallow it and go on. I don't think I've ever put it quite like that before, but that is just what it seems to me. I'll and delete it, that from the report. <laughs> <laughs> no, I won't. No, I won't. <laughs> Turn off your mic. <laughs> so I... I just think so there this sense that women uh we have to really pay attention to how we socialize women as you've t- talked about that yeah we do have the power to say no and to and to and to have to, to have boundaries and that's why this issue of boundaries is such an important one in terms of prevention 
so many people want to oh, jump in. Yeah, what, what would you like to say? I have a comment that this is slightly off topic, and it concerns the experience of males and youngsters in the schools. Um, I grew up Catholic, and I went to a Catholic school in Philadelphia, which later became notorious for priest things. But my comment is, these nuns that taught us the males physically from the time we went to first grade to the time we got out of that school. And everybody knew it. And if the kid went home bleeding or whatever, the parents' response was, well, you must have done something wrong. There was never any questioning about right. whether or not these women and these nuns were mentally fit to be doing what they were doing. But the, it seemed to be a universal thing. So you're talking about corporal punishment? I mean, yeah. getting, yeah. Well, thanks for raising that. And I think that... Um, I think that you, you raise interesting things too about gender that, you know, I'm talking as if it's always males who assault and women are assaulted, but the truth is that, that it, it, it can go the other way as well. And I hadn't really thought about the nuns being the ones in, in that position. But when power, when we give power to people, and of course p people have to have power, that's how human society works, um, we risk the, set, the possibility they're going to abuse their power. And, and women will abuse their power too, just as just as men will. Um, I mean, actually, Presbyterians get this, right? Isn't this what our whole system is founded on? Trying to prevent the abuse of power by not investing power in a single person, but only investing power in bodies. I mean, this is it's like we know this, and we can implement it in certain ways, but not in others. So, um, yeah, when I was growing up too, we didn't question authority, right? If the, if the uh, my dad was a Christian school principal, and uh, believe me, he didn't want to hear about it if I didn't if I had a problem with the teacher, because the teacher was going to be right, you know. So I get that, I get that, and you also see how 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 demonic that is, how it how it opens the door to further abuse, and I and I'm sure we've seen movies like Spotlight or what was that series um, on Netflix. Um, about the the young woman who was killed and she was in a Catholic context anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean, there's a lot of media out there on this subject is, is the point. And, and there's so much to explore. Yeah. I, I do believe that, that as we keep saying, power. And the point is that the response, like you said, you know, oh, just put it behind you. Because, of course, there's always the implication that it's the woman is somehow involved. And you don't want to sully your reputation like what somebody else does to you sullies yours. And we know of religions that, you know, will kill somebody because they've been raped. Um, but it's then the unwillingness to see that we have to expand who is in power. You're right. Women abuse power, too. But the question is, if we don't get people at the table so that all the conversation doesn't, you know, devolve into, you know, some nasty comments about women, it's, it's all part of the system. It's all a part of the system. 
So I hear, I hear you and, 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 and uh, you as well having mentioned, you know, the boys will be boys about what's acceptable behavior and how is it that we can talk about women and are there ways in which making degrading comments is normative and allowed? Would that be right? Is that part of what you're saying? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, thanks for raising that. That's absolutely right. I um, mean, when there's a power imbalance and there's a lack of equality, a person is is ripe for to be preyed upon in that way. And again, depending on, you know, it's like the girls at Vienna who who were young enough to believe to to be enamored of a, a man who's actually twice their age if they're 16 and he's 32. You know, think about that. And you know, everybody thinks he's so great. Um, Oh, I'm CRC, born and bred. Born and bred. So uh, I'm not surprised. Um, so I've seen that myself, and you're, you are absolutely right. There is an imbalance of power. It's like my sister said, if I had said something, people would have hated me. People would have looked down on me. They wouldn't have said anything, but it would just make them feel uncomfortable. So I think there's a bigger picture here. You have to. There has to be accountability at some level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a story, like I said. Yep. Another aspect of this is women have gotten into positions of more authority. Some guys can't take that and they feel they need to kind of stand aside in whatever way they can. And they, you know, so they object to it. So they undercut her, you know, the, the, the sexual comments about the woman boss, for example. Anyway, they can cut her down to size because they feel this imbalance. And they think the power should be theirs yeah. and not hers. Not theirs. Yeah. You know, and it, yes. Right. And so you can see how there are so many um, themes and topics and stories that kind of intersect when you start talking about these issues that it can be hard to know which ones to address and in, in what order and in what way. And, um, so I'm really grateful for you kind of raising your voices about what is of a special interest to you because you've raised things that were not at the forefront of my mind. And so I'm grateful for that. Um, there's always more to learn. Yeah. Let me see. You know, can I? Sure. Or, or do we need to move forward and 
No, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking about vulnerability and, and the peace of vulnerability over this topic and, and how hard it is for all of us to put ourselves in a place of vulnerability, you know, of speaking up, uh, of speaking, um, choosing when not to speak up, when actually speaking up could cause more problems than less problems. I mean, it's that it's that taking the time to think about as, as a victim, you know, what moves us forward? And I think it's, you know, think how hard it is to be vulnerable, like the Catholic school thing. I mean, I was mm-hmm. at a Catholic school also that had, hmm. had abuse going on. And, <coughs> and finally, it was, you know, uncovered. But so many people before it was uncovered had seen that and knew it was going on. And so what causes us to make ourselves step I apologize for talking so much, but I just have one more thing, and that is that, you know, talk about complicity. Do we know that every time we say that a woman, oh, she sounds too strong, or she's she's a bitch, or she's, you know, this or that, and, like, your voice is supposed to be modulated in a certain way, your emotions are supposed to, and all of that is a part of the early stages of Camping down. Camping down. Yes. And, and, and um, what you were saying made me thinking about vulnerability. I wanted to just t- talk about as Christians what Jesus says about vulnerability. Um, we are called to be vulnerable. We're supposed to be sent out into the world two by two without, a, without an extra pair of sandals, folks, without a bag of money. There's this sense where vulnerability is not a bad thing, according uh, to our scripture. It's something that has gifts. You know, when we're vulnerable, it allows other people to help us. It allows other people to hear us, to interact with us in a very personal way. I know a lot about vulnerability because I wrote these memoirs. I mean, you want to know about my life? You can read it, right? (laughs) Open book. But that that's so painful. This book... This book released on Tuesday. Technically, my launch day was January 14. It has been a tough week at our house because I feel exposed, completely exposed, and I am already getting pushback um, because I tell my story. And you can always quibble with someone's story, how they could have done it better, done it different. And why didn't you? And and so on. So yeah, these are very real issues, um, and there's so many different layers to them because there's our, you know, there's kind of, I mean, just to use myself as an example. I mean, there's me as a as a human being, as a, as the wife of Doug, as the mother of two daughters. I'm a person. I have feelings, you know. So I try to share my story, and then I move into. Well, if I'm using scripture, I'm being my pastor. I'm being Pastor Ruth, you know, and then I'm being author Ruth. And in all those places, vulnerability is functioning in slightly different ways, you know. And you could probably feel the same thing in your life, that some of it is tied to the role that you're playing at that very moment. And so so vulnerability is a really, you know, interesting topic. You know, you think of what Brene Brown has done a lot of work on that. And how it connects to shame. And, you know, if you're interested in that topic, just Google her TED Talks about that. Because there's a lot of good stuff about that. In my book, The Vulnerability and Voice Chapter, 
I um, treat a story, actually it was excerpted in the Christian Century about two weeks ago, um, about a soup kitchen story. And I try to bring in a few dynamics there about people who are vulnerable because they are um, mentally incompetent or they're uh, brown-skinned or they are indigent and uh, hungry and homeless. And so you have all these different layers, and that's what I kind of deal with in that particular chapter. And what you're saying about women uh, being, I, I just want to share these with you. So when I knew I was publishing this book, and I knew from my last memoir, I knew that it was going to be really painful at times. I thought, well, I'm going to make this as fun as I can. <laughs> as fun as sexual assault can be, which is like not fun at all. So what I did is I thought, what could be powerful? And I asked a young artist in um, Philadelphia to make me a piece of art. He does these woodcuts, these lino cuts. And I had seen one he did of the Magnificat, which was fabulous. So I asked him to do um, a woodcut of one of the stories I work with in the scripture, which is uh, a story about women not being quiet. And that is the parable of the persistent widow and the unjust judge. Do you know that parable? Luke 18. It's not as familiar as some others. And so I, he made these woodcuts. Let me just pass, pass it around so you can t- I'll put one in each direction and you can take a peek uh, at what he did with it. Um, it's such a powerful story, the parable. It's only three sentences long. And um, there's two characters, the persistent widow and the unjust judge. And the widow has a beef with the judge. We don't know what the beef is, which I think is really interesting that Jesus is almost suggesting it doesn't matter. What? Don't, don't worry about it. Don't worry. They have a, she has a problem with him. Now, widows are supposed to be what? Quiet, submissive, thankful for everything they get, right? This widow goes and literally pounds on the door of the judge. Now, a judge is supposed to be a lover of justice, supposed to be a man of a good conscience. This judge neither fears God nor loves people. It's only three sentences long, but we're told that twice. Like, don't miss it, people. He's an unjust judge. And so the parable is... The, uh, the widow pounding on the door of this unjust judge. So that's what the lino cut represents. And I just, I just wanted to share it with you. If you, um, I was using it as a promotional giveaway, whereas if people pre-ordered the book, I would send them a PDF and also then a promo code. You can order one of these at half price. So if you're interested in it, just let me know and I'll send, I can just email me and I'll send you the PDF. Okay. And my, um, Business cards are in the back if you need my email address. Um, as I just think that sometimes um, art helps us see something that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. And I, and I just wanted to share that with you because that story about that parable. Can I make a comment? Mm-hmm. Because my ex-husband was raised in Ireland and had similar experiences with women. Do you say Ireland? Ireland. So he didn't have a safe place. 
And one of the things that happened to him was when he was a teenager, he got to the point where he was physically bigger than his father. So he confronted his father. And at that point, he became the abuser. And so one of the things that I wanted for a long time is that we could learn how to teach people who are victims of abuse to deal with it, but without becoming an abuser. And I don't think we do a very good job of that at all. Because there's other kinds of abuse besides sexual abuse. Right. And I think right now we're very focused on the sexual abuse, which of course is horrible. Uh, but um, the abuse that he suffered was psychological and physical. I'm sorry to hear that. That's a painful story. Thanks for sharing that, because that's, that's so real. I mean, this this affected, and, and I'm sure there were then ripples of effect. It affected your marriage. It affected if you had children. I mean, it affected, it goes on. And I think that's one of the things about abuse. It is it is like a stone in a pond. It's, it seems to be a single act, but the ripples do just continue and continue. Does anybody else want to uh, venture something? Maybe somebody who hasn't said anything so far, just for fun. Anybody have a, a question or a point to raise? I've appreciated all your comments. That's not a negative on you. I just want to give space for everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, and people are afraid to speak up on when there is abuse because they're afraid then the abuser's going to turn on them. Exactly. And uh, so it does take a lot of courage to uh, to speak up when someone's being abused. And you look at what's happening in the Me Too movement right now. I mean, I, have you started to see some backlash? Have you started to see people saying, oh, isn't this going to go away yet? I mean, oh, those women, oh, those... I can't tell you how many times I've been called a snowflake. I didn't know that that was like the new insult, but um, I'm a snowflake because I've told my story. Um, I, I think it means that I think I'm special. I'm like every snowflake's unique, and so this is anyway. So I, I get this a lot. Where would you please stop talking now? I mean, would you stop writing about that? Or people say it in subtle ways or in powerful ways. They'll say, oh, another book on that. You're not done with that yet? Or they'll say, I really, they'll say it in like, like kind of like this, I really hope you find healing. The implication being that when I'm healed, I'll shut up. Which is interesting because if I feel called by God to address this topic, which I did not seek out, friends. Um, are you telling me to walk away from my calling? You know? Yeah. When you say they, when you use the term they, you talking about females? Um, the, the mean comments come from strangers on the Internet, like on Twitter. Um, it's if I have a piece come out, I will get comments on Twitter or to my website like that, just strangers who want to, say mean things or they want to leave a one-star review of a book of one of my books that they probably haven't read I'm sure they haven't read it uh, but they just it's a way to jab 
so so I mean as, as an author I feel that kind of being cut down um, does that answer your question People to my face are usually kind of nice because I'm a pastor. I'm a, I'm a professional Christian, you know, so most of the people I in, encounter are Christians or uh, wear the cloak of being a Christian, so they're going to be they're going to be nice. And some people talk out of their own woundedness, and that's fine. I get it. We're all at different places. But, you know, it brings up the issue of healing, and what does it mean to heal, and um, how can the church help with healing? I mean, there's so many different things we could talk about. I'm just looking at my notes and wondering um, which of these things to talk about just in the last few minutes. Um, how to help survivors, what about forgiveness, my thoughts on shame, you know, we could go lots of places, what congregations can do, how to be braver. Let me, this, this might be the best thing. How to be braver, how to hold a courageous conversation. I would think that in a sense we're having, we're beginning to have a courageous conversation. If you wanted to go farther with this, you could have, you could have a kind of a guided conversation, um, and you could have these rules. Listen actively and attentively to others. Assume the best intentions of each other. Speak from our own experience. We've been doing all those things. Take risks. Extend grace. Recognize our own discomfort and resistance to the topic. Be willing to accept the impact of our words. Um, I sometimes work with groups where we try really hard to just have a courageous conversation about gender. Because I think one of the problems is, is that we're, we're not allowed to unpack all the messages we receive about gender. I'm grateful there are some men here today. Sometimes I talk and it's completely a female um, audience because uh, men just seem unwilling to engage the topic. I think it's very threatening and very difficult. But if we had a, if men had a place, maybe with all men, to talk about actually what did they learn about gender and how did they learn to uh, um, to to surface that. I mean, I think I'll just raise, I'll just raise, drop one more little bombshell, and that's the name Brett Kavanaugh. What if we actually, what if he actually talked about how he was socialized to believe he could behave and tell the truth? I mean, nobody here thinks he's telling the truth. I don't think. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, let me back up. Do you think Brett was telling the truth? <laughs> what, what I mean to say is, you can, you can, you can say no. You can push back. But can we be a little more nuanced? Can we be a little more nuanced about how we're actually allowed to behave, how we actually live in our own skin? And that's why it takes such courage to talk about these things, see? Because, um, and that's what I think the church could do. That would be our gift to society. Because as this Me Too movement marches on and the inevitable backlash is going to come, um, you know, what's going to happen next? I don't think this is going to go away. I mean, the civil rights movement has not gone away. It keeps morphing into new things as society changes. I think the movement for women's equality is the same thing. It's going to keep morphing. I hope, I pray it keeps morphing. I, you know, other, what's the other alternative? Gilead, like the Handmaid's Tale. I mean, we have to keep moving forward. So, um, 
I just wanted to, to, to raise those issues because I think this group has what it takes to do some of that really hard work. And I would, you know, and if you do that, let me know about it so I can write an article so we can say let's other people do it. Like, like we have to start taking steps, you know? So, yeah. Yeah, can I dare to say it in a way that's clumsy? But then can someone extend grace and hear me anyway? Yeah. I'm glad you. So you you raise really the issue of male fragility, uh, if you've heard that term, which is what I really raised when I mentioned Brett Kavanaugh, because it's textbook example of, of of male fragility, which is posturing as a victim. That's what that is when you're when you're not actually a victim. But anyway, it's like time to close. It's, there's so much we could talk about. I want to thank you for your uh, rapt attention and your participation. And just to say, I'm going to deliver this lecture tonight at, at 6.30 at Lewinsville Presbyterian Church. 
Um, and uh, the reception's from 6.30 to 7, and then I'll speak from 7 to 8, and then there will be question and answer. So if you can't be, if you can be there, great. If you can't, just pray for me <laughs> at that time, because I have not ever had to speak for a solid hour in front of a whole lot of smart people. Well, that's not really true. I don't know why this is more... It's it's more intimidating than some of the other things I've done. I'm not sure why, but it is. Well, so this was a good prep for that. Yeah, yeah. So thanks for that. One more thing. I think behind it all is fear. What you're talking about, the men are getting afraid that they're going to start getting what the women have been getting. And so there's fear. Oh, yeah. Fear is huge. Fear is fundamental to somebody. These things happened 30 years ago, and then somebody comes out of the woodwork. There's a lot of pushback because of that. Well, all of a sudden, this person, Brett Kavanaugh, brought that up so many years ago. When yeah, I was this age, in my and that and that that's what happens in my story here too. Because I brought a, a I brought a uh, lawsuit against my senior pastor. Uh, I was his worst nightmare. I brought a lawsuit decades after it happened, and I prevailed. And uh, just to say that that's legitimate because. We have to remove all the statutes of limitations because abuse has its own dynamics that often surface much, much later because it's a lifelong situation. So I'm Thank sorry that we – and I have the, the books for sale. Um, my husband will help take the money, and I'd be happy to sign them. I have copies of Me Too Reckoning. I have copies of these other ones too. If some of you are going to – if you haven't read it yet, this will be a good book for some of you too. So thanks.